family. And of course, because of the tragic fall, there is an assault on this very structure of God in this present world as well. And so a couple of the topics this conference are going to be dealing with the challenges that we face. So I want to turn to 1 Corinthians. This was a church that faced challenges. And I just want to read 1 through 17 before we look at the challenge I'm going to be covering with you this evening. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ has, uh, was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptize none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptize also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I'll end the reading there. Let's pray together as we come before this challenging challenge that we face as families. Our merciful and gracious God, we are thankful that thou art a God of families who has assembled the families of the earth and even dispersed them throughout the earth that thy glory might be seen. Help us then as we Look at our families today, and we see how much is a, an assault on the very structure of family, on the very character of this institution that thou hast given to us. And we pray that we might be equipped as families, as fathers and mothers also, in protecting our children and ourselves 
uh, from this onslaught that does not seem to stop as we are faced with this challenge. So go with us now in this time together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All of you, I think, are confronted to one degree or another with the challenge that I want to present before you this evening. Whether you're on social media or you're riding down the road or you're going to the mall and shopping, um, whether you're looking at those walking in the street, we're all confronted with this reality of our personhood, in particular our sexuality. And I want to set a couple of things before us tonight before I I delve into the topic so I'm clear on a few things. First of all, I want to make it clear that just because I address the area of sexuality, this doesn't mean that this is all there is to life. It may seem like the world is presenting this to us today as if this is the end-all and be-all of marriage or any kind of relationship you could have is this area of our physical being. Instead, I want to look at this topic as, as one that has many aspects to it that is, I think, the evil one's deadly assault for a number of years, and now we're reaping the consequences of those seeds that he's sown for some time. The second thing I want to keep in mind, because it is a family conference, that I want you to know, I believe it's primarily a father and mother's responsibility to teach on the subject of sexuality. However, my wife and I have made it a point when we were married to, as our children were born and growing up, to be open about this area of life because both of us had been impacted by it in our youth. And so we were very conscientious about teaching our children, about being open with our children and telling them all the things from the time they were two or three till the time that they got married. And as was mentioned, they're all married now, thankfully. And they still come to our house since they live all nearby and, and, and we get together on Sundays often after the service. And one time my wife and I were just talking about, as we usually do about things, and I said to them, well, how did we do? And now they're married, they're willing to share what they're thinking. We thought we did fairly well. Until they said, well, you really didn't do that well. And as I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking there are some people and parents who who don't really teach their children much at all about this area of sexuality, and yet their children are faced with it every day, almost from all kinds of social media, their friends who they're meeting with, and in our culture and in the world today, we are bombarded on every side with all of these ideas that, that are coming upon us. And so it was in light of that that I thought this is an area that we need to be also addressing at the level of of the church. And also, I I want to be clear, as I hinted at earlier, that one of the reasons I um, speak about this issue when given opportunity to do so is because of my own youth and because of what happened to me, and I'm not 
finding it necessary to go into any detail, but being exposed to sexual issues and things as a very young teenager opened um, my mind and heart to these things, which only grew when nothing was ever said about the subject. It continued into later teenage years in which this area of life became, I could say, an addiction, a sin, a deep-rooted sin. And if it wasn't for God's grace, marvelous grace, to rescue me, I wouldn't be standing here to talk about this subject. But that being said, that doesn't mean that all those memories or things that were thought have no effect on me today. I'd be lying to you to say that that were the case. And those of you who have experienced this in your own lives know that to be true. God's grace forgives. It cleanses from all sin. It washes us clean. But we live with consequences of these sins also. And yet the Lord is able to to give relief and give deliverance from those things too. So I, I don't want this evening to be a negative thing, but I want us to be stirred up as fathers in particular and mothers as well to consider how we are to preserve and to care for our families and to protect particularly our children in an age that is incessantly bombarding us with all these different areas of sexuality. And I think of what's come into vogue, homosexuality, um, gender dysphoria where people are struggling with whether they're a, a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. You know, divorce that used to be talked about in the church a few decades ago is hardly even mentioned today. These are the issues that confront us as families and in the church. I want to do this then with four thoughts. First of all, I want to see why this is an important topic to address. Then secondly, um, I want to see the need for the gospel. That's where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians as he addresses this issue at Corinth. And and third, I want to consider a a proper biblical view of sexuality, and then last, what we are to do as families. So first of all, why do we need to address this issue? Well, I've sort of hinted at why I believe it's so important for us to address this. I could unpack that a little more by saying, Because my wife and I, having had experiences in our youth and talking about this to various groups also in churches, and both of us being involved in counseling ministry, we often receive perhaps an undue um, percentage of abuse cases or uh, sexual addiction cases. And I suppose you could say that may taint our view of what's actually happening within the church. This, this isn't only a, a problem that's happening in the world. This is a reality that we need to realize exists within the church body and within sometimes and often, we could say, in our own families. Just to give you a few examples of the cases that we have dealt with, a number of girls who've been abused by family friends who were female. 
girls abused by older siblings, a married woman who, because of the abuse as a child, is still struggling with these kinds of issues still today. A particular woman I could bring to mind who was actually abused by a Reformed minister. He served time in prison for what he did. And numerous men as well who are struggling with pornography, um, fetish behaviors, people, men who are uh, struggling in an ongoing way with what things that were done in the past in their lives. Men who are in the church looking at child pornography, going to internet sites to have bondage sessions. This number of people who I'm describing, it comes from all walks of life. Doctors, ministers, business owners, reputable church members, former elders, seminary students, wives. This cuts through all our families. And the reason the church needs to address this issue today is because the seeds for this destruction of the family have been sown repeatedly through the ages. There's a number of books that have been written uh, to describe this unfolding of the sexual revolution in our own country. But let me give you one example I don't think that you've probably heard of. There was a Dr. Alfred Kinsey who authored... Uh, certain scientific studies that he did in the 1940s and early 1950s. These really became a launching pad for introducing the sexual revolution you may have heard of in the 1960s. And his views, in many ways, shaped and molded the way in which our culture has unfolded and brought it to its place where we are uh, today. His views sanctioned sexual immorality, But the reality is, as scientists who have taken his studies looked at them decades later after they were promoted and and put on all kinds of social media or in those days were in scientific magazines, it was realized that his research methodology was seriously to be questioned. But the damage had been done. For example, for subjects, he used people who were in prison for violent crimes, who had committed these kinds of immoral acts. And he used the data he collected from them to present to the public and through the news media were were often broadcast as, for example, you've heard this statistic, I'm sure, one in ten people have homosexual tendencies. That figure, that that little phrase of a statistic that we often kind of hear floating around in our culture is originating from Alfred Kinsey, who himself was a, a pedophile. And he had hired fathers to do pedophilia acts on children. This is the kind of man who did this study and which was promoted in in our news articles and has been taken up today uh, by our culture. And where that leads to is our own government 
1964, it was launched by the Kinsey Institute, established a Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. So when we hear about the education of our children in public schools taking place, it's with this kind of ungodly, reprobate mentality and thought about this area of our lives. And the point is then that as families and church, we we need to address these issues openly. We can't be hiding uh, these issues from discussion or open communication in our families. We are given God's word, and it addresses this issue of life as well, as clearly as all the other areas of life. And we must address this topic of sexuality Not because it's forced upon us, but because God gave it to us as a beautiful expression, as we'll see later to some degree, but a beautiful expression of what is to be a part of marriage, of one man and one woman in this union of marriage. These issues are not going to disappear. Some of the children sitting here, if the Lord tarries, The men, boys, might grow up to be elders and deacons. Ten to twenty years from now, what are some of the issues that may be faced in the church? If we have a church that's outreaching to this world which is hopeless and crying out, the families are shattered, the brokenness of sin is everywhere, and we trust the Lord is still able by revival and reformation to bring people in. So when they come into the church. They find refuge here. How are you going to deal with such questions as a same-sex couple who are married and one of them has transitioned? Can they serve as office bearers? What if children have been brought into a relationship? How do you view these children regarding covenant? And you soon begin to realize that the church needs to be addressing the issues of our time with answers to these kinds of questions. And I'll confess, I don't have all the answers. But we need to speak and begin speaking together about addressing these issues in our age. And it's just not those issues of abuse that I mentioned. It's it's pornography, for example. And it's not just out in the world, as I mentioned. In 2014, so this is many years ago, 64% of self-identified Christian men and 15% of self-identified Christian women view this kind of material. At least once a month. 50% of 11 to 13-year-olds 65% of 14 to 15-year-olds, 78% of 16 to 70-year-olds report having seen pornography in some way. And there's a disconnect. When parents were asked the question, have your children looked at or seen pornography? 75% no, but I don't think that happened. On the other hand, 53% of the children said they had. It's because there's not communication between us as parents and our children about these, yes, they're very delicate issues, but they're fundamental. They're so important to train our children so they're not learning it from others. 
more and more studies are showing that the earlier exposure to these kinds of pictures and, and videos are transformative in the early formation of the brain of boys and girls. The brain is perhaps the largest organ that when we talk about this area of life that is impacted. When a child is exposed, they begin to think about sexuality in this way with their feelings, without any moral connection, without any other framework around which to base it. And they begin associating what they're seeing with what's going on just reactionary in their bodies. And these are the building blocks of their Identity, their femininity and masculinity, their desire, their power, their intimacy, their, their communication. It's all affected. And it begins to normalize certain views and behaviors that they have seen, and they begin to act them out. It's a global problem. $97 billion industry pornography is. 12 billion of that coming from the United States alone. That's more than the combined revenues of all the professional sports leagues. 4.6 billion hours of pornography are watched on one site. The biggest day of the week is Sunday. The most trafficked day of the year is Thanksgiving. Imagine if 42 million people were affected by a virus. We just went through a pandemic. Everybody was up in arms. Whatever you want to think about that whole pandemic. The point was people cared that people were hurting. Well, 42 million people have been affected by abuse. And only 38% of the victims disclose it. One in four girls, one in six boys before 18. The most vulnerable ages are 7 to 13. And we're only talking here about children and abuse, sexual abuse. 85% of those who are children victimized never disclose they've experienced this abuse. And more than 90% of the abusers are people who the children know. 30 to 40% are abused by a family member. We're at a family conference. This is the reality of what Satan is seeking to destroy. The beautiful picture we heard in the first topic. And one of the means in which he seeks... You go, we talked about Genesis. Look at what happened in Genesis, those chapters. This is what happened. There's nothing new under the sun. And God approaches it clearly and directly, not to stir up any kind of passion in our hearts. And I want to be careful, as I mentioned earlier, not to go beyond what I ought in a mixed audience like this of adults and children. 
But we need to be aware that there is an issue we need to speak about in the church and in our families. I'll leave you with this last statistic, which is perhaps more disheartening than any other. It's not only poor and defenseless children, but more than 90% of those who are developmentally delayed or disabled will be sexually assaulted at least once in their lifetime. There is some awareness brought to this by our society, the trafficking, the sound of freedom. Film, for example, is seeking to do this and the abuse that's happening throughout the world. This is the world we're living in and we need to speak about how the church is to respond appropriately, hopefully, to this situation. And so there is need for parental awareness. And as you Parents will play an important role, whether or not, in many ways, this will happen to your children or how they will respond to what's happening around them. We need to speak about this issue in light of what God is saying. So I want to turn then to what I read to you from Paul in 1 Corinthians. You know, Paul is writing this first letter to deal with many issues in the church at Corinth. It was having a lot of problems. Um, in a world perhaps not much unlike our own. There was devil worship there. There was great immorality. There was conflict between people, even families within the church. And and there was in this port city where the coming and going of all kinds of information and ideas and all kinds of worldviews were coming to play. and, And God's word was being attacked, if you will, within these small little communities and particularly in Corinth. I suspect that Corinth wasn't much different than we find our own country today. You only need to view one or two of the past Super Bowl halftimes to realize that our cultures are not much different. You only need to read the news today about former presidents and what's coming out about them to know that we don't live in a different world. And I want you to think about how you as a parent would handle the situation that the Apostle Paul had to handle in the family, if you will, the family of Corinth. Notice, first of all, that this isn't the first thing Paul puts on the table when he writes his letter. There was this immorality that you know I'm hinting at that was happening between uh, this son and his father's wife. He doesn't actually begin to address that till chapter 5. So this is why Paul's writing. This is one of the major reasons among all the other problems that are there. And and, and so you're writing a letter. You're going to address this problem. What do you say? Well, Would you begin like Paul does? Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What an amazing introduction. What a convicting introduction. After what was going on in the church, Paul is still viewing them through the eyes of who they were in Christ. Who they confessed to be when they had been rescued from their sin. And so Paul speaks to this church who is wrestling with the same kind of issues of sin as we do. And he he does this by giving thanks for them, verse 4. And by saying they have been enriched in everything, in utterance, in knowledge, and that they were waiting for Christ's return, verses 7 and 8. Who he says, who shall confirm them to the end and blameless in that day. And then he goes on to begin dealing with the problems that were there at Corinth. And he mentions the divisions that were happening among them. But his first major point, right after that, is when you look at verse 17. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of wisdom, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. He says to them, I have come, and I'm addressing these issues in light of this glorious truth. The cross, the gospel. And it's in light of this, it's the message of the cross, I assert, must be the central theme for us in our families, for this church and this world and culture in which we live, that will match then the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Apostle Paul in dealing with this problem that he had heard about in Corinth. If the statistics that I quoted are true, and I could have quoted many more, In my experience, they're true. Not out there, but in here. Then, brothers and sisters, we have a problem in our families, in our churches. And in light of this, the cross must be central. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. There are only two paths. There are only two ways. It is the cross that we fall down and we are worshiping at the foot of the cross or the cross will testify against us. It will be foolishness to us. We see no value and no purpose in the cross. It is only the cross for the believer, for the family, for the church that can rescue us and save us and protect us. But also, if we have fallen into any of these sins, it's the cross that cleanses and forgives us and gives us to be able to walk in a way that would be pleasing to God. So it's either the world's wisdom that we are going to follow in addressing these issues, as the world is trying to do on every hand, or it's going to be the word of God that's going to help us to address these very issues. And we will preach Christ crucified. That is the central aspect that we need to see in order to address these issues. Also, the issue of sexual sins. 
And this is what Paul says. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, the cross is not some kind of recovery program that we come to to somehow clean up our lives, that we preach having been saved, some kind of morality that we need to follow, but there must be a transformation of our heart and our lives through the power of the cross. To recognize our own sin, our own sin as individuals, our own sin as husbands or wives, as children, whatever we have done, there is a place, Paul describes that later in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you are washed, you are justified, you are cleansed. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, here tonight. That is the message of the gospel. And if we are gripped by this message, if we see that Christ, who hung on the cross and paid for sin that we have done, why then are our mouths closed to speak to those who all around us... I walked yesterday, I think it was, into Meyer. It's a big grocery store by us. And I am, I'm no better than these people walking there. But my heart breaks. Confusion. Hopelessness. Imagined pleasure or prosperity. And so the cross does not kind of preach some kind of morality separated from his blood. But rather the cross preaches cleansing and a power that flows from it over these sins. So that way we will not be enslaved and encaptured by them to be a light to this present world. And eventually, after bringing up the issue of sexual sin in chapter 5, he again comes to it in, in chapter 5, verse 7, where he, where he says this. If you just look, Paul's now addressed the issue, 5, verse 7. He, he comes to this. He, 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 read, read Corinthians sometimes and just think about Paul is bringing these very difficult and pressing, weighty issues to bear in the church. And then he's captivated as he does so about Christ. Look at what he does in verse 7. Purge out therefore. He's talking about this man who is living in fornication. That's how he began verse, uh, chapter 5. Now look at 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you unleavened for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And then in chapter 6, that what I hinted at before, don't you know, verse 9, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you were some of us. But you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There was a profound disclosure here by Paul 
Not simply of theological doctrinal truths. Yes, that's true. But he points out the centrality of Christ as the answer and the cross and the gospel to this problem that Corinth faced. It's the same answer to the problem we face. We might imagine, well, we're not living like Corinth. We don't have any person like that in our church. The reality is that our lives need to be purged from every sin. And just because we've mentioned the sins of sexuality tonight doesn't exclude those who are gluttons, those who do not use their body as Paul will later go on to describe, for the service of God, devoting themselves, their whole being to him. Nor does Paul address even the issues our Lord did when he said, what sins exist in our heart when we look at another with lust? Jesus says we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And Paul, he's striking at the heart of this issue. And when he does strike at the heart of this issue, look where he goes in chapter 6, 14. But God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Paul is recoiling from what was happening at Corinth. We can, in some sense, recoil, not because we don't recognize those things exist in our own hearts, but we can recoil at what's taking place in our world today. But Paul, in recoiling to what was happening at Corinth, comes to this idea for believers to think and ponder. God has raised up the Lord, and he's going to raise you up by his own power. Now, how can you take that which the Lord has raised up already in principle and will raise you one day in his likeness and use that very body to engage in the sin? That's what Paul is saying and where he's going with the implications of the resurrection. And so the way to approach these issues we face today is the gospel. I'm not opposed to talking about putting on software, accountability software, monitoring your computers. All of these things are important and part of the picture. But if we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. You see, the gospel is for sinners, for the sexually impure, for those who've been taken in by the lie of the age in which they live. Paul understood. This wasn't a psychological problem. This was a sin problem. It's part of a family problem. To deal with this sin requires us to know and understand and believe and preach the gospel. Well, the third thing I want to do is to address briefly the need we have to address 
a proper biblical view of sexuality. When Jesus told the parable of the sower, he described several different scenarios on the ground, the birds of the air plucking it away, and rocks, and so on, and then one that fell in good prepared soil. The essence of the parable is this. These did not bear fruit. This one did. And we can look at all the different kinds of theories and views of people in the secular world about sexuality, how they explain their views. But when you take away all the dross and dressing from all the different views, it boils down to two. It's God's view or man's view. It's God's view or a materialistic, atheistic, pleasure-filled view. In so many ways, we could say all the other views stem from a naturalistic view, views human beings as simply developed animals. It removes all kinds of responsibility and moral accountability. People who are living for the moment, a hedonistic view of life, whatever feels good is to be promoted and enjoyed. But God's view within the family, within marriage, is vastly different. It's a wonderful view. It's a joyful view. It's a pleasurable view. But it's God's view. And one immediately recognizes these two views are diametrically opposed to one another. And there's no ground for compromise. That's where we have come today as a church within the world. Compromise. And so we have a gay Christian as if that were possible, to marry these two terms together. When the scripture is clear about that kind of activity and even desire is sinful. Another stark contrast is that of the biblical view. It has moral absolutes. The sexuality that's presented to us today by our culture and our world is there's all kinds of shades of gray. But the Bible is very clear. There is that which is right, and there is that which is sinful and wrong, and that which ought to be proclaimed. This is what the Lord says, unashamedly. And so the challenges we face today are often because these two worldviews have become blurred in our minds through the lies that we are confronted with through the conversations we have with people at work, through the forcing upon us. Just, just the other day, my son works for an engineering company, and he needs to refer to certain employees by the gender pronouns that they have been assigned or what they want to be called by. And so one of the particular individuals is they, It defies all rules of logical grammar. 
This is the culture. You know, this is the reality of the world we live in. So as Christians, do we simply get engulfed in this world? Do we simply uh, repeat what we're told to say in this world? Or do we bring God's worldview? Do we bring God's word to bear upon what we face today? People are identifying with something. And they want to be seen as that something. Someone showed me a little video clip not so long ago of a person who was scrawling on a door, meowing like a cat. And if it wasn't so sad, how would you respond? They claim their identity and want to be their identity. But God gave us our identity. And part of the reason, which this world doesn't understand, the part of the reason people are living this way and believing these things is because of the reality that God has said, you have fallen from me. You have believed a lie. And you have continued on your path in departing from me. And you will only find sorrow and death. But it's believers and and families who can demonstrate to this world. This is what the Lord says. This is why we can have joy. This is why we can have true pleasure in our relationships, in marriage. Because God gave us the way we are called to live. Once we become a believer, our identity is that which is identified with Christ. You know, many of us, when we meet someone else, we, to strike up conversation, we simply say, well, what do you do? And, and intrinsically, what, what this is implying is that our value is often associated with our worth, what we do. This would mean our value is based on what we are going to accomplish rather than on I am made in the image of God. That ultimately, whether you're living in New Jersey or Canada or another country in this world, every person who's born into a family by a man and a woman has value. Not because of what they're doing or what they're going to accomplish, but because they're created in God's image. And how often we aren't relating who we are and what our worth is by what we're accomplishing. And so another effect of this in our culture is regarding male and female. Each gender is called to express that which God had created them to express as male or female. This does not define our value and worth before God. We are of equal value before the face of God, whether we're male or female. But the reality is God created us as such, either male or female. 
God created two genders. And it's through these genders that God's nature and his very character and his very being is even revealed to us in a tangible way. Gender isn't a social construct as we are trying to be told today. It is rather how God has defined who we are. And we have been created originally in relationship with God, morally upright, but we know that sin has corrupted this creation. Someone said this, your marriage is to be a transcription. And he was talking about the marriage bed act in particular. Your marriage is to be a transcription of the glory of God in this world. People with other world views should especially behold God's glory in your marriage and in your sexuality. Are we different than the world? Are we speaking into this present dark and evil age? Sometimes when I give a talk like this, I'm thinking, Job, and I'm sorry, Lot. He finally spoke. But his sons-in-law laughed at him. Have we come to the time in which when we will begin to speak the world and those in our families will laugh at us because we haven't spoken, because we haven't been consistent, because we haven't brought the truth of God and his word and the gospel to bear. It's God's view of sexuality, of gender, of all these issues that shape what we ought to think and speak in these issues. Well, lastly, I want to leave you with the anacronym freedom as to how we are to respond as families and as churches. I want to take each of these words, and I'm following um, somewhat of a pattern from Steve Gallagher, who did this as well, as to how we are to address a particular time and age in which we live. So freedom. The first letter is F. I think our call is to foster an atmosphere in our families and in the church of grace and honesty. If someone in our church cannot come to another brother in the church and say, I'm struggling in this area of my life, and is immediately judged, immediately condemned, why would you go to someone in the church? Why would you go to your dad? Now, you should. I'm not saying that. But fathers, would your son feel comfortable coming to you and talking to you about this? Foster an atmosphere of truth, grace, honesty. The church is one big hospital. We're all hurting. 
Some need trauma care. They don't know where to go. Sadly, when they're not heard in the church, they turn to the world. They click on the internet, and every answer is there. Can you still be a Christian and do this and think this and have these desires? Every answer is there. Can you be a Christian and struggle with your identity and you you really are encapsulated a, a woman in a man's body? The answers are there. But it's not God's answer. But in the church, will we walk alongside of those people who have that very struggle? Would people dare to come to us and talk about these issues in our families. This became clear to me some time ago when I gave a similar topic in one of our churches and the man came up to me afterwards and he said, after I described that I, I'm not perfect in, in my life either, and he said, oh, I always thought you were such a godly man. And he said, you have no idea how much help and courage you gave me just by talking about this. Are you vulnerable? I'm thankful many times there are young people who, young men in congregation where I'm at, probably there are here too, I don't know. I know nothing about you in this respect. But young men who meet together and hold each other accountable and, and no doubt probably young women as well. Open lines of communication in our families. The second letter, FR, call for repentance and renouncing of sexual sin. Sin needs to be called out for what it is. And, and if the pulpit and if in 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 our homes as families, as fathers, we're not calling out sin for what it is. We're not being faithful. And it's not in a condemning and a judgmental way. But it's in a way that recognizes we ourselves are susceptible to these very things. And if it wasn't for God's grace, we would also fall. Or maybe we have fallen as we were younger. And we can talk to our, our sons and daughters about these very things. But all of it is to be done when we call to repentance. When Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthian church and he's calling them to repent of what they were doing of not dealing with this man living in sin, what was the central message I said he was bringing? The gospel. The scripture has much to say to us about this topic. And the reality is, friends, that Sexual sins that often are exposed are the ripened fruit. This didn't happen in a 24-hour period that some man went off and did something with someone. This is a heart issue. 
In most cases, it's a development of a distancing oneself in relationship with God and a growing cold to the things of God and a falling in to this temptation and sin. It's not born in a moment. And so the point I'm making is this. Are we talking together in our families and in the church and holding each other accountable about our relationship to God fundamentally? Before we talk about all these other major falls, heart sins, these need to be repented of and called out as well. And repentance isn't simply becoming sexually pure. Rather, repentance in this area of our life is a radical renewal of our whole being, a change of the whole direction of our lives. So our whole being, that's where Paul is going in Corinthians. How can you give your bodies to an adulterer, adulteress? The Spirit of Christ lives in you. F-R-E Educate What does godly sexuality look like? Biblically What does God want us to see about this area of our life? Encourage your children fathers and mothers to to read give them books that you have read sit down with them at a very young age and talk to them about whatever books are appropriate and and discuss these things with them don't don't be naive your children are going to be bombarded with all kinds of information you know when most young people fall into temptations of pornography is around i think 8 to 11 and when do you think young people get their first cell phones the same time Teach your children early. God has given you, in your sexuality, a wonderful, beautiful, glorious gift. And it's just for you. It belongs to you. And God wants you to keep that gift until the time in which he will give you a partner for life. And expand on that. Just think of that, what that would be, if you would be able to do that with your children. Fourth, E, establish and encourage ministries in, in your families and in the church where men and women speak about who deal with these issues in their lives. How to be open and talk to your children. Encouraging ministries. Uh, for example, at the seminary, there is a book that I use with those who are willing to participate. It's called Proven Men. Proven men. It's a 12-week study. I've done it with many different groups of young men. And these kind of things can be started in your own church and with your families as well. I've done it with my own sons. Educate. And then establish and encourage ministries. Fifth, D. Disciple those in need. Mentoring. Accountability. As a father... There's perhaps nothing so delightful as having someone else in the church 
If we're one family, as Dr. Bocas was talking about tonight, we need to keep this in view. When these children come to be baptized, it's just not the child of those parents. It's the child of the congregation. It's a covenant family. When's the last time you've spoken with another young man, men, in the congregation? About anything of real value, serious, this issue. Would anybody come to you to say, would you mentor me? Would you hold me accountable? Discipling. This is a basic trademark of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Go and disciple the nations. Walk alongside of them. You who have been taught by my spirit, you who have been led into the truths of my word, walk alongside of others and teach them and lead them and guide them. And and discipling is not a two, three session time visit thing that's going to happen. It's an investment. It's taking time with other people. We're so busy in our lives. And there's people who write books. I'm thankful for that. I'm not a book writer. One of the things I want to do is pour out my whatever gifts and talent God has given to me into the lives of other people. To walk alongside of them. To hear them when they stumble and they fall and to encourage them and to correct them and to help them by God's grace. Are you mentoring anyone? This isn't a short-term project. Oftentimes when I counsel someone who's very involved in some kind of addiction, I I can only do so much with them, and then I try to seek someone else in the congregation, an elder or another brother, to walk alongside of them for the time following. Oh, sixth, freedom. Offer restoration to those who've fallen. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Such were some of you. You have been washed and cleansed and sanctified. But if you look at Galatians 6, 1, he also says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, he is saying, Paul, as an apostle, he too has been ministered to. He too has been washed and cleansed. We who are to walk alongside of others, we who offer restoration to the fallen, are those who have been restored ourselves. We don't stand in judgment and self-righteousness. It is the leaders of the church and fathers in families who will be able to communicate to our sons and the congregation. This is who God is like. And I say this not because I want to point to myself, but it was so humbling. One of my sons who was going through this man of book of proven men and with another brother. And there's a chapter on fatherhood in this book. And my son said to me, 
He said, I have come to realize the kind of forgiveness there is with God. Because I saw it in you. I thought I failed. And I have failed many times. But the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do our children see this kind of heart in us as fathers and mothers in regard to this issue as well? Our creation is marred with sin. We ourselves are marred with sin. And if you have tasted of God's forgiveness and his cleansing in any area of your life, but in this one in particular, are you not ready to restore and offer forgiveness to those who have fallen as well. Lastly, M. Model. Model godly character and compassion and consecration. Our walk as parents will determine the level of sanctification and holiness of our children. You've heard the expression, a congregation will not rise so much above the holiness of their minister. Well, a family is not going to rise so much above the holiness of their parents. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, let us take heed lest we think we stand and instead we fall. What a sad day it would be if we come to our families before the throne of God and all that's happened behind the scenes comes to view. We have been negligent and not faithful in bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of our families, our children, our sons, and our daughters. I close with a story told by Matt Chandler. He was sitting next to a 26-year-old single girl, mother of a child who had had an extramarital affair. And there was a group of people who had, other guys at the college who had been ministering to her, and they had decided to bring her to a um, church service where one of their friends was playing a part in some of the worship. And they had found someone to babysit her kid, and they had spoken to her about her lifestyle and um, her child, and they brought to her the gospel, and they, they took her to this church. And it happened to be that that night the pastor was bringing a message about sex. And today he said... Our message is about sex. And he took out a red rose and he smelled it and he touched the petals of the rose. And he said, you need to smell this rose too. And he walked over to the person in the first row and he said, I want you to pass this through the auditorium. And they passed that rose as he was speaking through the auditorium. And everyone touched it and everyone was smelling it. And as he was going on and on speaking about the evils of sexual promiscuity and fear-mongering, and, and, and Matt said he could just feel in himself this frustration and even anger starting to rise because it was a moralistic message. He would say things like, who wants to kiss someone when you have herpes in your mouth? And at the end of the sermon, he asked, where's my rose? Someone bring me my rose. And they brought it up to the front. You can well imagine after hundreds of people had touched this rose and smelled this rose, it was shambles. 
basically a stem. And he holds it up to make his closing final point. Now, who wants this rose? And Matt Chandler said he was ready to shout out, Jesus does. Jesus does. That's the gospel. The gospel was not presented to these people, but shamed them into a morality. We live in a broken world. We live in broken families. We live in a broken church. We need to hear the gospel again and again. And Jesus can make you a new rose, a beautiful rose, a cleansed rose, a new creature clothed with a beautiful garment of his righteousness. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we come tonight recognizing our own failure, our own sin. And yet, Lord, there is hope. There is great expectation for our families, for the church, through the gospel, through the work and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the greatest of sinners. We pray that as we hear throughout this conference of what we are called to be as families, as parents, as husbands, wives, as children, that we would see through it all thy heart, thy desire, that we would humble ourselves, come into thy presence, and experience life forevermore. Forgive us every sin. Remember those here who have been hurt, who have been traumatized, who have been affected also by the sin of others. Help them to deal with these things and to go to thee to find help, to grant forgiveness healing and cleansing in thy blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.